You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit hcbc.com. Today's message comes from Tim Hawks. Good morning. Welcome each of you to Hill Country Bible Church. For those at Steiner Ranch, for those joining us online at one of our venues, we're so grateful to be together. And I'm curious, just like putting jealousy aside for the moment. When you see Curtis and Natalie with their teenage girls sitting at the table, holding hands, praying, having a wonderful time, doesn't that just warm your heart? This kind of make you like, wow, that's how life is supposed to be, right? And then Curtis makes this statement. He says, eating meals together as a family, it could just be the most important thing that you would do. Now, that's a bold statement. You wonder if that's correct? I mean, you think about all the things that you could possibly do. You know, you could say, well, you know, I'm going to give my kid a good education or I'm going to give my child a safe neighborhood to grow up in. I'm going to give my child things that are, are nice things and experiences that will be fun and fulfilling. All of those things are okay, but is it possible that actually putting a little bit more time into being together and particularly around meals is actually better than all of those things? Well, the answer to that is overwhelmingly yes. Now, at Hill Country, uh, we believe that God desires you to thrive. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. And we love you too, and we want what's best for you. And so we've been talking about some of the patterns of life that are profoundly important. For example, a few weeks ago, we talked about how all the studies confirm that teenagers that go on to hold their parents' faith, predominantly there's one thing that parents do that can ensure that, or at least set them up to do that, and that's if families will make a weekly commitment to be together in worship. Not families going in different directions, kids go to youth group, parents go to the to big church. It's actually being together. When, when families sit together, middle school, high school, with mom and dad, and they have a chance to see the overwhelming joy that you have as you worship God, as you spend time looking at the Word of God and listening and interacting as a family, that's the number one thing leading indicator that a child will adopt their parents' faith and continue on in the rest of their life. And yet, most families don't make a commitment to be in church regularly, and most families don't have their kids sitting side by side with them. But this is true. This is like the evidence is in, 20 years of research that goes into this. The same thing is true with eating together. In fact, Studies confirm that the most important routine for helping teens embrace their parents' values and avoid risky behavior is sharing meals together. Now, when we talk about these studies, we're not just talking about some Christian group over in some corner someplace, you know, with some backwards tradition uh, coming up with this research. This is across the board. Universities... Um, groups that study the family, like massive research. In fact, don't take my word for it, just Google, well, you don't do it now because you'll get caught up in all the articles, just Google mealtime together as a family or family meals together. You'll realize that educators, 
uh, doctors, mental health professionals all over talk about this particular routine is profoundly transformational in, in people's lives. Now, I want to define a couple things here to, to help you with it. The first one is this idea of routine. Like, how often does this work? Like, you have to do this to work. Well, what they studied are groups of people that ate three times together or less as a family, and those who ate together per week, three times or less per week, and those who ate together five to seven times per week, and the information is overwhelming that three is kind of the break point. You start to see benefit at three, and then it just increases the more often you do this together as a family. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. So you're, 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 you're triggered, right? Like when a conversation comes up like this, you just immediately, whoa, 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 whoa. So Tim, here's what, here's what I'm hearing right now. I'm hearing that I need to go to the farmer's market every week. I need to spend three hours every day preparing meals. In addition to that, what I need to put on everybody's plate is a perfectly balanced meal. Literally, what I have to have is a farm-to-table household. And I have to do this every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner, while the kids are yelling at me, I hate eggplant. And maybe a spouse, too. Let's face it, it's eggplant. <laughs> All of this research doesn't say that you have to have the perfect spread at the table. In fact, sometimes that actually gets in the way. All the research is saying is that having food and togetherness shared, that's what makes the difference. So, whew, Take that off. Now, dial in because I, I want to give you the benefits too. So, the study also points out that the benefit of this is when it comes to embracing parents' values and avoiding risky behavior. What does that mean, embracing their values and avoiding risky behavior? Well, here's what the research is confirming. For people who do this, there's lower rates of depression, suicidal ideation, and attempts anxiety, eating disorders, teen pregnancies, drug and alcohol use among teens whose families eat together five to seven times a week. That, that, these are big deals. Now, when you start thinking about, like, I don't want a child to be depressed. I don't want suicide, anxiety, eating disorders. Like, now, this isn't a guarantee that if you do this, it's going to, like, guarantee it, but the rates drop significantly, and what they're replaced by are some positive things. I'll just give you a couple. Higher rates of resilience and self-esteem. In other words, children who have the security of an intact, deep relationship with their parents are able to weather the difficulties of life, resilient to bounce back from hardship than teens that don't. And they have a better sense of who they are, their worth through these relationships. The reason why is because it's so relational. We see improved health and we see improved communication. 80% of the teens say that dinner is when they are most likely to talk to their parents. Now, some of you say, well, my teen never talks to me even at dinner time. That's why they said most likely, okay? Now, here's what's important about this particular stat, is this is interviewing the teens. 
And what the teens are saying, even though they may not really want to schedule and spend time around the dinner table together, they're saying that that's the time when they would be most likely to open up about themselves, talk about themselves to their parents. And the result of that, 150% more likely for children and students to have a deep relationship with their parents if there's regular meal times together. Now, it seems like when we look at this, that everybody would say, well, this is just obvious. Why, why don't we do that? Do you realize that pre-pandemic, only about 30% of families reported having regular sit-down, face-to-face meals together? 70% had kind of cut that out in all the activity and the busyness and the craziness that we've committed ourselves to. Now, there's a reason why this is really significant, and I want to unpack it for you because if you, if you understand the science behind it, it makes total sense. So if you're a person who doesn't have teenagers, you don't have middle schoolers, you don't have kids at home, and you're thinking, well, this is one of those sermons I can just check out on. Now, this is the moment when I want you to dial back in. Because this is for everybody, because you are wired for this. So whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're an empty nester, whether you're old person, young person, you are wired a certain way, and that's why this works for everybody. So you don't have a family here, but you're commitment to connect regularly with people over meals will profoundly enhance the quality of who you are and your personal life experience. What's all that about? Well, brain research, and I can spend a lot of time dumping the whole thing on you, but let me just, let me just put it really together really simple. Brain, has shown, brain research has shown that the combination of eating and being face-to-face with another person uh, produces powerful feel-good chemicals in your brain. In fact, it releases high levels of oxytocin, which is enhanced when you combine the food, the eating, physiological, and the face-to-face. Oxytocin is the brain-produced chemical that is typically called the love chemical, And it builds trust, joy, intimacy, reduces fear, and opens you up to deep bonding with other people. Now, here's what's so interesting about that. How did that get in our brain? Like, how how did our brains get wired that way? Well, some people say, you know, survival of the fittest, and it just kind of, like, over billions of years, it just kind of came together. Um, Man, you got a lot of faith if you think that's true. I personally believe that it was an incredible designer that designed us for a certain type of life, and that type of life, if we live that way, it actually works physiologically. Like, your body is actually built by God who could have designed you any way He wanted, but He designed you specifically So the combination of eating and together would make you as a person and your experience in life so much more enhanced. In other words, when God was creating us, 
Uh, God designed eating as an essential part of life. Like God dis- decided that we would be fueled by putting food into our bodies, and that would be essential. Like we can't not eat. So that brings us all to some kind of a table. Survival, right? We, we say the phrase, you've got to eat. But even beyond that, God designed eating together as an essential part of human thriving. So God actually wired you to experience joy and meaning and belonging and love in life by sharing meals with people as a routine part of your life. And, and what's so interesting about this is, like, we all know this. I mean, just think about it. Think about how society is actually built. When it comes to holidays, what do they include? Food and family friends, right? Family or friends. So Christmas, New Year's, Easter, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving. What do we do? We gather together around the table. We eat together. We share because these are special times and special meaning gets conveyed in those moments. We actually even have certain types of food that go with each of these gatherings. We also have the main national holiday that we celebrate. In fact, it's coming up. Um, It's a holiday called the Super Bowl, right? (laughs) Now, how many of you, like, be honest, how many of you have thought to yourself, you know, I really hate sports, I really hate football, I don't even know what they're doing, and why, like, people get all crazy and start pounding their chest and yelling, but I go to Super Bowl parties because I love the food, I like to hang out with people, and I want to watch the commercials, <laughs> right? Like, that's what gets me to the table because I can't imagine being left out of being together. We also have included food and face-to-face in every major milestone of life. Think about what we do at birthdays, at baby showers, at graduation, at weddings, at funerals, what we do at retirement parties. I mean, you could just go on and on. You could talk about almost every romantic experience like dating would happen around a meal. Like, this is normal that we would get together, eat together, and it has been through the history of civilization. Every ethnic group in every era have made major milestones, holidays, special occasions, all around eating together. Why? Because inherently every human being is wired that that's when the good stuff really happens. And so God says... This is important. It enhances life. It enhances your thriving. And and just think about it. What if we remove that? Because our lifestyle doesn't fit it. In fact, uh, just think about this. Just, Just put this in your head. Take it home. Mull on it this week. We are living in a society that's breaking norms. That throughout the history of the human race have been standard norms. And we're replacing those norms with a way of life that is not making the quality of our life better, but in many cases worse. 
Now think about it. We, we, we have more affluence than we've ever had in the history of the world. We have more access to medicine. We have more access to food and varieties of food. We have more freedom, particularly in the United States, to be able to decide what we want to do and where we want to go and who we want to be. We've got all of that, and yet the craziness, busyness is driving the relationships into deeper and deeper experiences of loneliness, depression, anxiety, fear, distrust. And we keep doing it. So here's what's really cool. Not only did God build us for meals with meaning, but he actually ordained three meals in Scripture where God himself said, here's a meal, I'm going to give it to you, and I want you to practice this meal, do it, and it's got meaning infused into it. I want to unpack those with you really quickly. I think this is going to be kind of mind-blowing because you don't typically think of this from the standpoint of God said, here's a meal, do this and keep doing it. Now, the first one we, we actually see in, in our Thrive series. So Jesus was in the upper room in John chapter 13, and Jesus is going to give them his last words. But the setting tells us in John 13 that it was around a meal. The evening meal was being served. Verse 4, so Jesus got up from the meal. And remember, we talked about he washed the disciples' feet. Well, what was the meal? The meal was actually the Passover meal. They were celebrating the Passover meal, and the meaning that God infused into the Passover meal when he commanded his people to celebrate the Passover every year was that we have a common identity. Meals with meaning can create a sense of identity. We have a common identity. Now, <coughs> the story of the Passover... Let me give it to you real quick. For those of you who might not be familiar with it, um, the story of the Passover started in the book of Exodus when the nation of Israel had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Pharaoh had enslaved the people to build his monuments, and that had been the way of life until God said, I'm going to free my people. He called Moses the leader and said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now think of that phrase, let my people an identity statement, right? Let my people go. Release them from slavery. They're not slaves. They're my people. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I got two problems with that. First of all, who is this God? And secondly, they're not his people. These are my people. They're my slaves. And so God starts a conflict with Pharaoh. And over the course of time, God attacks the ten major gods of the worship of Egypt. They had ten big deities that they worshipped because God wanted to show them who he was. And so some of the examples of the plagues, they worshipped the sun god, Ra, and so God made the daytime dark, took the lights out to show, like, I'm stronger than Ra. They, they worshipped the Nile, the river god, and God turned the river into blood. And he did that nine times. And each time, Pharaoh said, you know what? I'm not going to let the people go. They're my people. They're not your people. I'm stronger than you. And so in the very last plague, the tenth plague, God went after the most personal deity of all. Pharaoh himself thought he was a god. And therefore, his family line 
was divinely ordained because he himself was a God. And so God said, well, for this final plague, since you won't let my people go, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn child, which was a direct attack on Pharaoh's lineage and his power as a God. But God also said, anybody who will sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorpost of the house, when the death angel comes, the death angel will pass over every house where atonement, the blood has been applied to the door. And so all the Jews killed the sacrificial lamb, applied the door, to the doorpost. Some of the Egyptians did. They were like, hey, this is our 10th time to go through this. We're with them. <laughs> Not Pharaoh. And guess what? That night Pharaoh's son died. And that night Pharaoh said, get your stuff and get out of here. You're his people. You belong to him. And they left. But while they were leaving, God ordained a feast. Sorry about that. I got a little cough. <coughs> God ordained a feast, and he called it the Passover, that they were supposed to eat every year as a people to remind them that they belonged to him. He, they were no longer slaves they were God's chosen people. And in Exodus chapter 12, he tells them that. He says, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe the ceremony. In other words, this is an every year deal. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Which is really important, parents. Dial in right here. This is not a ceremony for the kids, we're, we're all taking pictures of the kids so we can post it because they're so cute. Sometimes Christmas, Easter, has not become a ceremony where we're worshiping God, but where we're watching our family, right? So when your children who are with you in your worship see what you're doing and they ask you, why are you doing this? What does this mean to you? then you as the parents, you tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. Like God institutes this meal that my Jewish neighbors who live across the street from me practice every year as a family. Now here's the power of identity. Of all the people that have been persecuted and scattered over the globe, it would be the Jewish people, and yet they've maintained their identity. Their children know who they are and where they came from, even to this day. Why? Because God gave them the Passover, and they still practice it as part of who they are. It passes on identity. And so God infused this meal with meaning so that Families would be face-to-face. -face. There would be generational transmission of the story of where we came from and pointing to the God who we belong to, our identity. Now, Jesus didn't come in and simply say, okay, I'm here now, the Passover is gone. What Jesus actually did was he took the Passover and used it to create the second meal that God infused with meaning. And that is the Lord's Supper. So at the table that night, while they were practicing the Passover, he picked up the third cup 
of wine, which was part of the meal and the unleavened bread, and he created the meal for the church called the Lord's Supper. And the meal for the church is infused with meaning because it tells us our common purpose. Why are we the church on this planet? Why do we exist now? What's God calling us to do now? Now, Paul talks about this when he lays it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. And here's the meal. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he took the bread and broke it. So this is symbolic of my body, which is going to the cross where I'm going to be broken. I'm going to suffer. And through my suffering, you are going to receive the bread of life. And so we eat the bread, and it reminds us that Jesus' suffering has forgiven us. He goes on to say, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying that there's going to be a new relationship formed between God and his people, the church. And that new relationship is going to be initiated by me shedding my blood so that you can have a permanent relationship with the God of eternity. And so he says, whenever you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. So what are the things we're supposed to do? Why do we exist on the planet? First of all, to keep the memory of Jesus alive, to remind ourselves that Jesus gave his life for us so that we could be forgiven and that we have a relationship with God. And we need to do that. We need to preach this gospel to ourselves. That's why we take communion uh, time and time again during the course of the year, preaching the gospel to ourselves. But he goes on to say, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why are we here? We exist as Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian, like this may seem a little weird to you, but like, we're, I'm going to explain it to you, okay? So you, you have an understanding of why we are who we are and what we think and believe and what we actually practice. So welcome. Glad you're tuning in or glad you're in the room. So excited to have you. So what do we do? What are we here for? Why do we exist? We exist to continually remember and celebrate what Jesus has done for us and to make sure that the rest of the world knows it so that they have the opportunity to have that same forgiveness and that same covenant, new covenant. That's why we exist. So if you think, excuse me, the reason why you exist is to get get a house in a nicer neighborhood or get your kids into the right college or to have a lot of great experiences or to watch your, your fill of Netflix, if you think that's why you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you're missing the whole thing. Now, those things are ancillary to our primary purpose, and our primary purpose is to remember Jesus and to communicate Jesus to the world. I have to take a swig on that one. <clears throat> okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take just a moment and think about some of the most meaningful meals you've ever had in your life. Most meaningful meals. While you're thinking about it, let me share one of my most meaningful meals. 
When the Soviet Union broke up a number of years ago, I know Putin's trying to put it back together right now, but when it broke up, the countries <coughs> of Central Asia opened up, and for the first time, we were able to get the gospel in there. We went into countries in Central Asia where you could count the number of believers on your fingers and toes. There was nobody that really had access to that group of people for all of those years. And so we went in there, Hill Country Bible Church, we formed a coalition of a number of churches and some other groups, and we went in there, started preaching the gospel, showing the Jesus film, and finding people that we would train to be church planters. And we started a training center. I taught in the training center. I would go over there every year and spend a couple weeks training these students. And so as those students left the training center, they went back to their home countries and hometowns and started preaching the gospel. One of our students, Babamarat, lived in Turkmenistan. Now, most of you will have to look that up on a map. Turkmenistan looks like the surface of the moon. It's such an arid place. And I was able to get a visa to get in there. In fact, I was in there just shortly before a huge persecution broke out and they arrested everybody and shut everything down. But I went in there, <coughs> excuse me, and it was just amazing because I'm, I'm traveling with Babamarat to his village. They'd started 22 house churches in the villages there. And we come to this village, has 300 huts in it, dirt floor, and he takes me to his family home. I go inside. The table is a rug on the floor. The chairs are pillows around the table, and I sit down across from his elderly father. They bring a big bowl of the traditional dish, ash, which is a rice dish, and begin to show me the correct way to eat with my fingers. Just to prove to you who hate etiquette that it exists all over the world. So there's a way you can eat and make a mess, and there's a way not to, and so I won't teach you. But they were teaching me how to do that, and we were having conversations, and everything's translated back and forth because I didn't speak Turkmen, and so um, we're interacting. I didn't speak Russian either, so we're interacting, and his father says this. It was really, really profound, like caught me. His father said to me, he said, tomorrow when I get up, I will go back to the barn where I go every day, where I've gone every day of my life to get my tractor with the rest of the men to plow our fields. And I will tell the men that someone from America sat in my home at my table and they will not believe me. They will not believe me. And I thought, oh my goodness. Like after 70 years of atheistic communism that crushed and closed the world to the gospel. I'm sitting at a table in a village where the gospel is now being proclaimed. And people are coming to faith and being transformed. This is why you left me here, Jesus. Like That's why I exist. And that's why you exist too. To proclaim Jesus. All the rest of the things that you build your life around, those are all ancillary. They get you through the day. They feed you, put, put bread on your table. But really living in this calling 
And Jesus gave us a meal so that every time we take it, we're reminded, remember Jesus and proclaim his death until he comes. Meals with meanings. But look at what he says here. He says for us to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes when this meal will no longer be necessary because it's going to be replaced by one more meal that God ordained and infused with meaning. And that meal is the wedding supper of the Lamb, which God infused with our common destiny. If you're a follower of Jesus, where are we going? You say, well, marriage supper of the Lamb, when's that going to happen? Well, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, after the resurrection, after the rapture, when God brings everybody together, unites them with Jesus as he establishes his kingdom, there's a moment, an inflection, where he brings his people together with Jesus in a wedding-like ceremony. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Paul writes, or John sees these things and he records what he sees. He says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his own bride, his bride, has, been, has made herself ready for this wedding. Goes on to say, fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. White dress. What dress? Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, your wedding garment on that day is made out of the acts of righteousness that you're doing right now. That's why everything you do matters. That's why this is a meal of destiny. It's where you're going. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. There is coming a day when God will bring his people together, people that have followed Jesus, and he will unite us with Jesus in this incredible feast and ceremony that's comparable to what we do when we practice or participate in a wedding ceremony. Now, I've been in a lot of weddings, right? Because I'm the pastor, so I've known a lot of people, done a lot of weddings, been to a lot of weddings, and, and weddings are all awesome, okay? Most weddings are all awesome. <laughs> there are a few bride or groomzillas or mother-in-law groomzillas or mother groomzillas or father, like there's some of those, but we won't think about those. But it wasn't until my kids started getting married that I really fully got this picture. So when Matt and Lady got married, and then when Ben and Nika got married, it was like, wow. So this is what God feels like as the Father presiding over his two loves, his son Jesus and his church. I don't know how to communicate it, but I feel like it's captured a little bit. If you guys would indulge me to show a video of Ben and Nika. Okay, so the, what, the fee, the, what ceremony happened, the feast happened, and now it's time for the first dance. And as I look at, at it from the father's standpoint, it just blows my mind. Let's watch together.
and Nico for their very first dance as a very call. coming a day when the Father is going to look on and see you. And he's going to see you as you celebrate face to face, eyeball to eyeball, looking into the eyes of Jesus. That's in your future. That's your destiny. And God builds this around a feast, a celebration, a wedding to remind us like whatever you experience in life, when you remember that someday you're going to be in the presence of perfect love, locking eyes with Jesus who gave everything for you, and that will extend into a meaningful experience in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever, what that does for you today because of that meaningful meal is it makes it easier to understand that when the highs in this life are high and everything's going well and then we get that empty feeling and we go, well, you know, I thought when I got to this point everything would be so wonderful. And you go, no, it's not that good. Or when your lows are so low that you think, I can't get through this. And then you do. And on the other side of it, you go, I grew a lot through this. This was actually beneficial in my life. Both those lows and those highs are all modulated by the reminder, the, the vision that one day it's all going to come together. It's all going to make sense. And that actually creates the sense of destiny, which changes the way we look at life. God has infused us with the ability to connect 
to bond, to experience love and joy. And one of the primary places where we continue, remind ourselves, engage with each other is in meals that are meaningful together. That's why I'm challenging every one of you to take our 120-day Meals with Meaning Challenge. What we're asking you to do, and by the way, there's the QR code if you want to just go there right now because you know when you get home, uh, you're going to take a nap and forget or you're going to change diapers or whatever it is, um, just go, go ahead and, and, and jump on there. What we want you to do is take the 120-day challenge, and here's what it means. Um, at least three times a week, you're going to meaningfully engage with somebody in a meal. It may be your family. If you don't have family, it may be with a group of friends or different people. It doesn't have to be dinner. It can be whenever you do that, but you're going to make a commitment to do that. And then we want you to tell us the stories of how God is just using that to help you have a better sense of self-thriving and the connectivity you have with each other. Let me just give you one caveat. This device works against it, okay? This device actually does respond to a chemical in your brain. So every time you pick it up, you get a dopamine hit, which feels real good. You don't even realize it, but you, you get addicted to this over time. And this dopamine hit is very individualistic. It focuses on you, and you get it by going back here. So... If everybody is doing this and expecting this to happen, it's not going to happen. So here's what I want you guys to do. So teens, children, confiscate your parents' phones before these mealtimes. <laughs> okay, it used to be that parents would get after their kids for electronics. Now it's like, how long is he going to stay in the bathroom? He must have his phone out with him in there, right? Like, like Dad, Dad's not responding because he's disappeared. So even researchers show even taking it out at a meal and putting it on the table has a negative effect because if it's in your line of sight, your brain that's connected to that dopamine hit is telling you, reach for the phone, reach for the phone, reach for the phone. Your mind can't can't get the full benefit. So just warn you to do that. We've got all kinds of tools, resources to help this happen, and we want to see it happen, and we want to celebrate it together. So we're actually starting 2022 with the possibility of a new routine for each of us that could help us thrive in our marriages, in our families, with our friendships, with, with our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our neighbors that we're reaching out to, coworkers. Three times a week, make a commitment to it, and God will use that to do something in your life this year. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you have wired very simple little things into us that have profound transformational power. And I pray that we would embrace and rearrange and follow through. I pray a blessing over all step into this 120-day challenge, that they would be surprised at how much better and how much more meaningful their life becomes. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen. 
To experience everything we have to offer, visit us online at hcbc.com. And as always, thank you for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.